This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is where we gather together electronically to uh, have conversations and to allow you to listen in on conversations that I have with thinkers and leaders and writers uh, that I respect and admire and want to talk to. Uh, be sure to, in, to also check out the other uh, podcast, the Russell Moore uh, podcast, where we do Bible study and answer your questions about ethical dilemmas that you might be facing. Be sure to send me uh, any of those dilemmas that you might be facing now, and I'll do my best to answer on the program. But here on Signpost, we look for those pointers toward grace, uh, what Walker Percy used to call signposts in a strange land. And my guest today is Todd Bolsinger, who is a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, speaker, executive coach, a former pastor, and an author uh, who's uh, been at Fuller Seminary for several years, and his books include the Outreach Magazine Resource of the Year in Pastoral Leadership from a couple of years ago, Canoeing the Mountains, and the Christianity Today Award of Merit recipient, It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. But today, I want to talk about his newest book that just came out uh, some months ago called Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. And here's what I wrote in my column that I do every year on my top 10 books of the year. This was for 2020, just a few, just a few weeks ago, although 2020 seems like it was years ago in many ways. Here's something that I've never done before. I'm putting a book on this list that I haven't finished reading yet. And as a matter of fact, I'm only two chapters in, but I can't help myself. The first two chapters have been so good, so life enriching that they alone are worth more than the price of the book and would be on this list even if they were just a pamphlet on their own. The book argues that a leader, and I would argue that this would apply to almost everyone in some context or another of life, is challenged sometimes by a failure of nerve and sometimes by a failure of heart. Failure of nerve is caving into the status quo out of fear, whereas failure of heart is the numbness that comes from despair and cynicism. And the answer for the author, Todd Bolsinger, is tempering a process of reflection, relationships, and practices that lead not to invulnerability, but to resilience, which is not about being smarter and tougher, he says, but about becoming tempered. And uh, I noted in that that a lot of the work uh, resonates with a book that I read several years ago, Anti-Fragile, uh, but it it does so with a different framework and a biblical uh, understanding and authority of someone who has experienced, you can tell that right, right away in the book, has experienced the joys and bufferings of leadership and has worked with many who has. Now, I wrote in the thing, now maybe the book veers off from here into something uh, heretical and enraging, such as the argument that the magician's nephew should be read first in the Chronicles of Narnia or some such thing, but I doubt it. And I think I can see the direction the book is going and I expect to be as helped by the last of it as I was by the first, and I was. I finished the book not long after I uh, wrote that, and I wished that I had uh, been able to read the whole thing before I wrote it because I would have had a lot more to include. Really, really helpful book. Welcome, Todd Bolsinger, to Signpost. Thanks for being here. 
Oh, thank you, Russell. It's very nice of you to have me. And thank you for a very generous review. I really appreciate it. Well, I really benefited from this book. And I I, I was actually talking to a leader uh, not long ago who hadn't didn't know that I had read the book and was quoting it back to me. And we were we were helped by by uh, similar uh, things in the book. You know, when I was uh, reading this book, one of the things I thought about was a conversation that I had one time that was surreal where someone said to me in a leadership situation, uh, we know that we can't get rid of you, but we can do psychological warfare until you're ready to quit. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really honest. I, I, really, I really do appreciate <laughs> the forthrightness of that statement because I've seen that happen so often, not stated that bluntly, but with pastors and others who often, one, one pastor said to me, I've got 90% of my people who are really supportive and encouraging and kind, but I've got maybe a 5% group that just doesn't give up. And he says, I'm exhausted and, and I don't know what to do. It seems to me that you answer a, a lot of those questions in this book. And you, you talk about the fact that it's not about getting smarter and tougher. And I think a lot of people think it is. What, what, do you, what do you mean when you say that's not the goal? I think for a lot of us as leaders, we assume that if we're smart, that means I'm the expert, I'm smarter than you, I will prove I'm right, and then you will come along. Or that I'm tough, you know, I can outlast you, I've got more power than you in the system, I can make the system work for me against you, so you should fear me, the change will come. And what you've just described in those churches is that in most churches, you can be right and you can have power. And there's a whole group of folks who will just say, we don't care. We are just not going. We're just digging our, our, our feet here. And what's really hard and painful for, for most leaders is most leaders are up for the task of confronting whatever they need to for the sake of the gospel. You know, they're interested in going into the world and pro proclaiming justice and the good news and the gospel and evangelism. And they want to take their people with them. And a lot of times their people will cheer them on. And then as soon as you start going, they stop and they resist. They even sabotage is one of the words I use. And what we discovered is the most soul-sucking thing was not the challenge that's out there in the world. It was the disappointment with your own people who turned on you because you actually were trying to raise them to the challenges of the world. Well, you use this metaphor of tempering uh, that I thought was, was really helpful uh, because it emphasizes both strength and flexibility. And it, it reminded me of something that John Stott said years ago in a completely different context about Christianity, where he says, if you have too much rigidity, you end up in sort of fundamentalist sectarianism that tries to just reduce everything down to a, a very tiny few. And if you have too much flexibility, you end up with a loss of identity and, and orthodoxy. And you're speaking in similar terms about uh, the person and, and about how to lead. How does one know if, if one maybe has too much rigidity or too much, uh, too much adaptability and flexibility? Well, that's, that's a great question because it starts with um, developing a deep capacity for self-reflection. I mean, the, the scriptures are filled with this, right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Um, the, the capacity to 
uh, doubt your own motives, to be humble before the Lord, to know that you could be wrong, is actually, that vulnerability is actually the first step for developing the strength and flexibility and wisdom that is a tempered, resilient person. But for most of us, we 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 don't really want to feel that vulnerable. So instead, we fall back into you know trying to be smart and trying to to be the expert or trying to be the person with all the power. And this actually takes us in a different direction. So the deep self reflection that you see in the scriptures, combined with the community, with the council of wise counsel, with a group of people who together share a mission and a vision, who together discern that, really give gives us the conviction we need to keep moving forward. So it's really important. I mean, throughout the book, I talk about the fact that, you know, the tempered, resilient leader cannot do this by themselves. You cannot become a tempered, resilient leader by yourself, white-knuckling your way there. It is a process of reflection and relationships and then practice. How does someone in a in a culture like ours, and, and I mean a church culture as well as a world culture, that really does see vulnerability as a disadvantage, uh, an image of strength as being an advantage. And that often turns out to be true, at least in the short term. I, I know of a pastor I was talking to one time who was really in a difficult place. He'd been through a lot. He was seeing a counselor and the counselor said, why don't you talk to your staff and say, look, I'm I'm in a a hard place right now, and I'm I'm seeking uh, some counseling, helping me through it, and and just be patient with me. And he did, and his staff all said, "Oh, the the pastor must be cracking up," and uh, and, and it created a bigger crisis than what he had had before. And he said, "I wish I'd never done that." How how does one embrace vulnerability when it does seem that there are some people who are going to be looking for any sign of weakness? in order to further sabotage. Well, my favorite part of that story you just told is that he was talking to a counselor of some kind. He was he was actually being vulnerable in another space. So there's two different parts to it. One is your ability to own the vulnerability yourself in safe places where you can allow God to keep forming you and shaping you. Then the second is, is do you have a system that is safe enough to be able to handle vulnerability? And those are Two different pieces, especially if you're a, a younger leader. Many women leaders talk about not feeling safe. Many leaders of color, many people who've been in systems that are church systems that have been dysfunctional for a long time. So there's two different parts to that that have to get worked out. And some of that is a process over time, but it doesn't start by you getting hardened and you getting defensive. It starts by your capacity to be able to start being vulnerable with other people and then lead from a place of truth. And lead from a place of continually bringing people calmly back to the truth. I mean, I mean, frankly, you've been one of the models in this way. I, I've watched you for the last few years. We don't know each other personally, but I've admired your own work of speaking truth to power in your own system within the larger church. It's costly. It's very costly. But there is a way of doing that that ultimately ends up being much healthier in the long run. And it is the only way, I believe, that we can have the kind of transformation in our lives and in our congregations and in our movements that is honoring to God and actually will bring the transformation that God is looking for in the world. I wonder if you have seen the same thing that I have, and I, I'm confident you have, because you're consulting a lot uh, with pastors and leaders all the time. One of the things that I've noticed is uh, a lot of figures who are really, uh, maybe they're church planters, 
uh, who've been really successful. They, they built their, their churches up. They seem to be really confident. And then all of the sudden, something just crashes. Either there's an uh, adulterous affair or there's some sort of uh, a character issue or just a, a deep, deep depression. I mean, I've seen this show up in so many different ways. And in one case, uh, someone in the church said, um, we don't have a system because the gifts and the sort of personality that are necessary to succeed in this world, and in that it was it was church planting in difficult areas, also are what uh, are what ultimately brought this person down. And it uh, it seems to me, and substance abuse that's another one. Uh, often it seems to me that there's a kind of a, a person who is wanting a way out. And this is maybe at the subconscious level, the only way that they can find. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes say that I tell, I talk to leaders and I say, you know, there are, you can ever, always hit the eject button. You can hit the button that will get you out of this. It's usually a button that comes with a lot of pain and a lot of, um, a lot of pain for you and for people you love and the people you've led. So, so immorality and uh, denial and you're not taking care of your own mental health and all those things is a way of hitting un, even unconsciously an eject button. But what we want to talk about is how you can become a leader who goes through this kind of, of these kind of challenges, coming out wiser and stronger and leading to the transformation of your people, which is your calling. Right, you're calling. We are all called to become more like Christ as we take on the work of Christ in the world, and that transformation. There just are no shortcuts. And I think part of what I'm trying to point out in this book is, in a rapidly changing world, this has gotten harder. Um, I, I had actually had a. I was speaking about this in Scotland, and I had an older minister come up to me and say, "You keep using the word leader. You keep telling me that I'm a leader. I'm not a leader. I'm a minister." And you could tell that he he was thinking about his role as a person who, you know, many of us who get into pastoral ministry, we love God, we love people, we want to introduce the people we love to the God we love. We never think about the fact that to actually participate in the work of Christ so that the day will come when literally the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever is going to require our ongoing transformation and that we resist it. You know, we see this all the way in Exodus, and we see this all the way through the scriptures. We resist the very transformation that God calls us to, and we need leaders who have the health and the wisdom and the strength, the tempered resilience to be able to lead through that process as they go through their own transformation. One of the parts of the book that really struck me, I, I noted it and I came back to it, is when you were, and you're talking about Exodus, reminded me of it. You were talking about Moses uh, with the grumbling of the Israelites about food and that the, the problem was not that that happened. It was the repetition of it when it happened again. And, and I thought, you know, I've never thought about that before, but that is what I have seen so often is people who they actually can make it through uh, a difficult situation. But when they find themselves with the exact same problems reemerging, it's, it's a lot more difficult then. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you, when you see Moses in Exodus um, deal with the grumbling of his people, you know, he basically uses this as an opportunity to strengthen their faith. Okay, we will call out to God. God will provide food for us, but we are not going back to Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. In Numbers 11, now they're complaining because they're tired of the miracle they have every morning. 
I mean, yes, God's showing up every day and providing all of our needs, but oh my gosh, wish I wish we had leeks and onions. I mean, the Egyptians killed our children, but we at least had leeks and onions. And what that does to Moses is so profound. I mean, he literally says to God, if you're going to leave me with these people, kill me now. And this is where I think a lot of leaders, a lot of pastors that say, you know, God, if you're going to make, this is the only group I'm going to lead, I'll, I'd rather sell real estate. Or I, I always think I'd rather be a national park ranger doing trail maintenance in the woods. Yes. And what we need is God to come to us and remind us, this is your call, and I'm equipping you for that call, and that I need you not to become brittle and bitter and cynical, but instead to continue to work through your own formation. And this is what this book does, is lays out that path of formation. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You mentioned at one point um, uh, referencing Friedman's uh, model about failure of nerve, the difference between failure of nerve and failure of heart. And I thought that was a helpful way that you unpacked that. How, how can a leader know if he or she is facing failure of nerve versus failure of heart? Yeah, so so Friedman's idea was the failure of nerve, and, he, and I think this is a huge contribution of Ed Friedman for us, which was that we naturally are going to want to collude and go along with the people that we love, even when they are wanting to go back to Egypt. Right? This is the this is the moment that we face all the time, and I always say, to people, remember that the root word for family and familiar are the same word. So when people are in unfamiliar territory, they end up feeling anxious as if they are been abandoned, like they're like they're spiritually homeless, like they're orphans, and so they want to run back to anything familiar, even if that familiar was really dysfunctional, or was really bad, or something that God is delivering them from. The failure of nerve is the ability to calmly overcome that anxiety and fear and continue to move forward and move your people forward. The failure of heart is what happens when we get so discouraged and disappointed in our people that we just give up. It's what my friend Jimmy Miato, who's the president for Compassion International, says, you know, the hardest thing about doing the work of God is that it can sometimes undo the work of God in you. And that's where many of our leaders end up. We end up brittle and cynical and angry and bitter and wishing that we had some other degree that we could do something else. 
And it's really those moments that this book comes back to about how the long haul of ministry and transformation, the long work, the long obedience in the same direction kind of thing, is really requires a kind of ongoing formation in the life of leaders that many of us um, have neglected over the years as we've moved into leadership. I'm glad you mentioned uh, long obedience in the same direction because I was having a conversation uh, not long ago with a pastor who said, I'm really conflicted because he said, on the one hand, I'm reading Eugene Peterson. um, And in that case, it was uh, under the anxious plant, I think is what he was reading, about rootedness and about staying in the same place and about persevering and, and going through. He said, on the other hand, He said, I'm reading other uh, things about not wasting your life and your gifts in a place that doesn't fit. He said, I don't want to be the person who's in a a toxic environment where I'm really not contributing much uh, here. And I should, as Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. How do do you know uh, which of those categories you might be in. I mean, and I was thinking about him when I was reading, I was rereading Parker, uh, Parker Palmer's book on um, listening to your life. And uh, he talks about how he learned from his weaknesses in terms of that he wasn't a fit for educational institutions. He was a, a fit in another way. How does someone dis- differentiate between those two? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually, you know, it's the last big topic I take up in the book because one of the parts that's really helpful, um, this a lot of this work is built on the work of Ronald Heifetz and his colleagues at Harvard on adaptive leadership. And one of their principles is um, you have to give the work back to the people. It, it is the reminder that as the leader, your job is not to do for them what the people need to develop and become themselves, right? Jesus sends out the 70 to do the work of evangelism and proclamation of the kingdom because he's equipping them for that work. And we see this all the way through the scriptures. So what I always say to leaders is when you give the work back to the people and you call them into the leadership, the, the very leadership they know they're called to do, and they continue to resist it, just continue to resist it, and you have that conversation with them over and over and over again, I think it's the moment for you to lift your head up and ask the Lord, do you want me to stay here? Like, is this really your call? Do you need me to stay with these people? And if, I, if I'm going to be the person who dies in the wilderness with them, then I will. Like, I need to think we need to be ready for that call. But we also need to be ready that this could be the moment that God has been preparing us to then go find the people who will respond to that work. And I think this is an act of discernment. I mean, we started, you know, by talking about vulnerability and community. And I think at these moments, you need to be vulnerable and in community. And I think that that discernment is really, really critical. Um, but I, I think we, are, we have come to a place where in many of our movements, we just believe that the pattern of success is to skip from one to the other to the other until you personally are successful. And I think that's dangerous. I, I can remember somebody saying to me once at a moment of my own, you know, needing to think about my own ministry. And they said to me, you know, Todd, you can't just have Todd Bolsinger ministries at some church. You've got to decide, are you the leader and the pastor of these people called to go through this, con- this work with them? And that was really important to me. Yeah. You know, you talk about uh, in the book, and I, I thought this was really helpful, about being grounded and about one's identity that's not not rooted in success or failure. Uh, and you use some examples from your own life that I thought were really helpful about that. 
how does one get to that place? Yeah, yeah. I, I think more than more than anything, the thing I look for when I'm uh, stepping into a coaching relationship, when I talk to people, um, what I realize is um, you need to be grounded in something other than your success as a leader. You have to be grounded in something else, or you're not going to be able to withstand the disappointment, the anger, the resistance. You you will fall victim to the failure of nerve or the failure of heart if you're not if you are not grounded in something else. And so for me, that comes right back to Jesus's own experience, you know, of being baptized before he has done a sermon, before he's cast out a demon, before he's confronted a power, before he's done anything. The first thing he hears is, you are my beloved. I'm already well pleased in you, right? And many of us need that as the anchoring reality of our lives. And I think for many of us, as we get into leadership, more and more we realize we are doing it for the approval of people rather than for that voice that reminds us that we're already approved, we're already beloved, we're already secure. Now out of that place of groundedness, you are able to lead change and in the, even in the face of resistance. You referenced at one point in the book, uh, Martin Luther King in his uh, interactions with the so-called white moderates uh, in, in Birmingham. And I was actually thinking about that passage. I'd read it a lot earlier uh, I'm part of a, a book club of uh, friends we, we meet by Zoom uh, right now. Uh, and we had been talking about some heavy things uh, that, that had been going on. And I was really shocked that about three o'clock in the morning, probably, and I, I think he would not mind my saying this if he knew, the most curmudgeonly of us. Uh, it was really shocking <laughs> to me. As he sent an email out, he said, you know, I think uh, part of the problem is that we convince ourselves that we should husband our uh, influence and conserve our influence for a time when it's needed. He said, and there's some wisdom to that, but I think we've been uh, doing that too much and it's time for us to to spend it uh, and and to pour it out. And it really resonated with me because uh, many of those so-called white moderates uh, in Birmingham. That's exactly the script they were telling themselves. We have to, uh, we we can't get too far out in front. And so they're conserving their influence in a way that never, never made change (laughs) at all. How does someone know uh, sort of how to, how to, whether or not the person is too rash, maybe, or as, you know, maybe is more often the case, too timid and, and actually is, is thinking, telling himself or herself that it's adaptability when it really is fear. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really important question. And as you know, I mean, the letter to the Birmingham jail, you know, it was written to a group of uh, Methodist and a Presbyterian pastors who spoke out of great concern for their congregation and their community. And what they were protesting when they wrote the letter was that a 50 African-American Christians in their Sunday best did a silent walk through the city on Good Friday. Like that's what they were protesting. I, I start realizing when those of us who have been in places of of privilege or just places where the world works for us, I mean, uh, my, the whole book, Canoeing the Mountains, is all about the fact that church is moving from the place where we have a cultural home court advantage and we're just uncomfortable. We're just used to performing in front of cheering crowds to cheer us on. Realize when we're uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean 
that um, that we're being persecuted or that things are against us or we're doing it wrong. We're just the world is changing and we need to develop a tolerance for being uncomfortable. And so very often, especially when I'm with uh, my friends who are pastors and leaders who are people of color, they will say to me, you know, you're just used to the world working for you. And so as soon as it doesn't in the slightest way, you think it's either a great injustice or you've made a great failure. This is the hard work that we have to do. We have to calmly, wisely, faithfully lead people through a world that is changing, that is dramatically, rapidly changing, and we're just uncomfortable with it. Um, a lot of uh, pastors say to me, I didn't sign up for this. And I say, everything in your life that matters to you, you didn't sign up for. You didn't know what you were signing up for when you got married, took those vows. You didn't know what you were signing up for when you had children and you held that little one that you love now. You didn't know what you were signing up for. That's, But when, once you've signed up for it, you have to trust that those commitments are going to shape you into the person that God is calling you to be. Mm. I, I thought it was really interesting near the book, the end of the book, uh, you talked about the Apostles' Creed as an example of why we don't take good things and make them essential things. Yeah. What did yeah. you mean by that? Well, what I was talking about is for me, one of the most disruptive, amazing parts about Jesus' ministry is that when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment, right? So greatest, one, what is the one thing? He answers with two things, <laughs> right? He, he gives them two. And that is disruptive because they're asking him for the single most important thing. And he says, actually, I'm revealing the living God. And God wants you to know that the God who wants you to love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, just as much cares about you loving your neighbor just as much. So he literally takes a passage from Leviticus and he crams it into the Shema. You know, the Shema, the O Hero Israel is the like, it's the most important scripture for training up your children in the Hebrew Bible. And that thing, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now Jesus says, and a second is like it, love your neighbor. And that creates a controversy. Because what he's done is he's said the, it is more important, it is just as important as a follower of Jesus to love your neighbor as it is to love God. And most of us, we have still not come to grips with just how completely radical and disruptive Jesus' words are at that moment. You know, uh, as I was reading this uh, book, several times I kept thinking about uh, that you have a, a sequel almost <laughs> embedded here of uh, tempered communities. Because... Oh, that's interesting you say that. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I just, I, I have a book contract being negotiated right now about developing adaptive capacity and spiritual formation in the church, in your communities, right? So it's a, it's a discipleship book is what it is. Well, I was wondering, because I, I uh, get asked this question so often, especially by pastors, but by people in other places of leadership too, who are really lonely and who are saying, how do I find relationships when, as one person said to me, I really can't have the sort of relationship that I need with people that I'm ministering to because I really, it really feels too dangerous to me to get with a group of those people and say, I'm thinking about just giving up or I can't stand the people I'm working with or whatever. And and this same person said, and I can't really find it with uh, other pastors because so much of that is 
shouldn't be, but it is kind of competitive. And there's some rivalry that shows up. And this person said, how do I, how do I find those people? Because it, it feels almost like I'm in middle school and I don't know how to go up and say, don't you want to be my friend? Yeah. So, yeah. How, so how would somebody get from loneliness to, to community? Yeah, so so this is actually the, one of the pieces, you know, the book is a big blacksmithing metaphor, right? And so when you talk about the vulnerability of of the, the feeling of vulnerability and leadership, that sense of loneliness and and a needing of support is the experience of, the, of like a steel coming out of the fire. In blacksmithing, the very first thing you do is you put it on an anvil. And so I use the idea of an anvil to talk about the amount of heavy, trustworthy relationships you need in your life. And so when I coach and when we consult and we work on this with groups, we always say, look, you need three types of relationships all the time to lead. One leader needs three types of relationships. You need partners, you need mentors, and you need friends. You need all three. You need partners who are people who care as much about the mission as they do about anything else. They, they care as much about the mission as you do. That's how you know they're your partner. When I, I need people in my life who care about the mission as, as much as I do. Friends are the people who care more about me than they care about the mission. My friends are the people who say to me, hey, Todd, I heard you got a new book out. And I go, yes, I do. You want to read it? And they go, no, not really. <laughs> like, like, Congratulations. We're so, so happy for you that you got your book finished. Like, My friends care about me. My partners care about the mission. My mentors are the people who care about me so that I can be faithful to the mission. And we need those in the middle. We need those spiritual directors and those counselors and those coaches. And I often say, you know, I believe that trying to lead anything without a spiritual director, a counselor, or a men or a coach is like doing leadership malpractice. It is you need we need these relationships. So I'll often when I work with people, I will say to them, you know, okay, you've invited me to be a coach. I'm gonna be the mentor. Now let's talk about who are your partners. Are you doing this by yourself? Are there other people who care as much about the mission that you're called to as you? And who are your friends? Who are the people who care so deeply about you that when you are no longer on a platform, you are no longer have a microphone, you're no longer writing, you're no longer influencing, they're going to call you because they love you and care about you. And that sense of not just finding one friend or one person, but literally spending a life building that network, that making that solid anvil that holds you is really critical to tempered, resilient leadership. That is an important point. Todd Bolsinger, the book is Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. It's a fantastic book. And I know many of you uh, listening to this have benefited from, from hearing these insights and you would really benefit from, from reading the book. And I've, I have next to me uh, Canoeing the Mountains, uh, the book that was before this, and I plan to read that uh, right away as well. Todd Bolsinger, thanks so much for being with us on Signpost. It's really my pleasure, Russell. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you, listeners, for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you listen. And uh, also check out the Russell Moore Podcast there. And leave a review if you're so inclined because it helps people to find us. And if you're listening on a smartphone, you can tap the cover art and you'll find show notes with some resources for you, a way that you can get this book uh, as well. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signpost. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive. 
transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.